Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. You see an alienation with democratic governance in countries, including a lot of those surrounding Australia, like Thailand, Indonesia, etc. You see the breakdown in satisfaction with democracy. Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte has been called many things. A misogynist, a macho fascist, an authoritarian, a strong man. But among his own people, Duterte is still overwhelmingly popular. He's the most trusted government official in the country. The victory that even Malaysia's most enthusiastic opposition supporters considered far-fetched. Now that we won, yes, I think we got a new hope. Malaysians were able to bring a huge, huge change. We got rid of a government that was in place for 60 years, peacefully through the ballot box. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. In Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia researchers about the issues behind the news headlines in a region that's rapidly changing the world. According to longtime Southeast Asia watcher, journalist and diplomat Michael Vatikiotis, Power is regarded as an absolute attribute. You either have it or you don't, and your life is worth far less if you don't. When we speak of Southeast Asia, we're referring to a region of 640 million people across 11 countries with a diversity of cultures, histories and levels of economic development. At least on paper, most practice some form of democratic politics. In countries like Singapore, Indonesia, the Philippines or Malaysia, citizens go to the polls to elect their leaders with a regularity you'd expect in a modern democratic state – But how much does that really tell us about the quality and the degree of representation and political participation? Factor in the dynamics of growing market capitalism, widespread economic inequality, entrenched elites and an Asian giant to the north. And it's worth asking just how political power is held, shaped and challenged in Southeast Asian states today. To discuss the rhetoric and the reality of the political landscape in parts of the region, we're joined by two keen observers of Southeast Asia politics. Politics and International Studies Professor Gary Rodan is Director of the Asia Research Centre at Murdoch University. He's authored numerous books and articles on the region over a long and distinguished career, with a new book just out titled Participation Without Democracy, Containing Conflict in Southeast Asia. It's from Cornell University Press. Also with us is international affairs and public policy expert Dr Avery Poole, Assistant Director of the Melbourne School of Government, where she researches and writes on democracy and governance in Southeast Asia. Gary and Avery, thanks for joining us and welcome to Ear to Asia. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, as we said, Southeast Asia is such a large and extraordinarily diverse region. But overall, how well represented are its people? Can we generalise at all about the degree and the quality of representation and participation, Gary? When you say how well are they represented, there's an underlying assumption there that representation can be measured against one universal set of criteria. I think one of the interesting things that we've missed not just in Southeast Asia, but more broadly, is that there can be non-democratic as well as democratic forms of representation. And the idea that institutions in and of themselves, such as elections, are intrinsically democratic, misses the point about how contingent most institutions are in the way that they operate. So we really have to look at the 
context within which institutions operate. And we really have to interrogate some of our primary assumptions about what representation means. And in the case of Southeast Asia, yes, we do have a great diversity in political regimes and we do have complex histories that affect the ways in which political and indeed economic development uh, is heading and the relationship between those two in contemporary Southeast Asia. Avery, would you agree with Gary? Is there any regional norm, if you like, of democracy? I don't think there is a regional norm of democracy if we think of norms in, well, the way that academics like to define it is with respect to standards of appropriate behaviour or common expectations. I think from that perspective, there's certainly no regional norm. I don't just mean that most states in the region are not democratic, although that is the case, but that understandings of what democracy means differ and also the way that democracy can be framed for instrumental reasons also differs. So in that respect, it's very difficult to generalise about norms of democracy. What about democracy, the word itself? Gary, what exactly does it mean? What are we talking about? Is it a definable proposition? It certainly is. But as Avery says, different people subscribe to different ideas and definitions of democracy. But that cannot mean that anybody can claim democracy in any situation. The definitive feature of democracy is the concept that people who are represented in politics have an opportunity to select their representatives and to discipline their representatives. So if they don't like what their representatives are doing, then they can remove them. Institutional mechanisms for that can be many and varied, but the fundamental principle is that people who are operating as representatives of people must be able to be held accountable by those people. And that's one of the differences. Well, it is the fundamental difference between democratic and non-democratic politics. Gary, can we look back? How much, and you hinted at this before, how much of the past, the relatively recent history, uh, colonisation, Cold War, repression, how much of today's situation in Southeast Asia is connected to where these countries have come from? These legacies are immensely important. When we consider the Cold War... That was a context within which many of the countries in the region were seeking to become politically independent. Not all were colonised and many of the countries were colonised by different powers. But as a general rule, the context of the Cold War shaped politics in this region in an adverse way from the point of view of the prospects of democracy. In particular, there were many dictators and authoritarian leaders and authoritarian governments in the region that because they were anti-communist, were seen as allies of the West and received a great deal of support to maintain those regimes. It was never the intention necessarily of the supporters of these regimes from the West that there would be political repression of the various opponents and critics of authoritarian regimes, but in practice that's what often happened. What were the implications of that for civil society, the development of civil society? Well, they were stunted. In particular, trade union movements were often affected, student movements, movements that were generally of a social democratic, let alone socialist or communist nature, were adversely affected. And 
it was also a context where the capacity to promote identities and consciousness that would fragment and break down civil societies was also fostered by some political elites in the region. Consequently, you have less of the social foundations for social democracy and redistributive politics, which is what happened in the advanced capitalist countries when liberal democracy emerged in the 19th and particularly 20th century. Avery, I know that if we're looking at this through an historic lens, you uh, refer to the process of the establishment of ASEAN and what that tells us about uh, these countries, not just within themselves, but how they represent themselves to the broader region. So the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or ASEAN is the primary intergovernmental body and all the Southeast Asian states except for Timor-Leste are currently members of ASEAN. ASEAN has gone through this process of adopting democracy as a standard reference in its rhetoric, um, as a principle and a purpose of the organisation. But what we see, of course, is a disconnect between that standard rhetoric and the reality of the significant political diversity of its member states. But when it began, I suppose, what was the imperative behind that? There may be the use of the word democracy, but really they needed to grow, they needed to development, and that created its own imperatives, didn't it? So the adoption of the principle of democracy as a standard aspect of ASEAN rhetoric is is a much more recent thing. But if we go back to the origins of ASEAN, I think there was much more focus on internal stability and consolidation of internal rule of newly independent states. Uh, The founding members of ASEAN were Indonesia, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand and Malaysia. And those states were all, as Gary has mentioned, really quite concerned with the threat of communist insurgents and a sort of internal stability and security. So ASEAN was founded in part to try to start the genesis of some sense of regional resilience and a resistance to too much influence from great powers um, outside the region, but also in this sort of mutual recognition that these newly independent states were state-building stage, if you like. And if we bring this to today, Avery, what do you see as the key forces at work in the region? Is it is it all about economics? Is it all about globalisation? Is it all about inequality? Economics is certainly, from a regional point of view, a major concern of ASEAN's and and that was also a very important motivation to create ASEAN in the first place. So certainly over the subsequent decades, economic integration has been a major aspiration, if you like, and many ASEAN observers argue that that's the only area where we've really seen any tangible progress for ASEAN progress on the economic front. But Gary, if you look at the, I suppose, the flip side of that, and we see that all across the globe, the impact of globalisation and growing inequality, is there any difference in Southeast Asia in the impact that those issues are having? No, there's no difference fundamentally, but in the precise way that they play out, I think they're in some cases more intense because the absence of social democratic movements to put in place things like minimum wages, protections for workers in a whole range of other areas, effective social security and welfare systems, has meant that in some of these cases, the sense of being abandoned by the establishment elites, the sense of dissatisfaction with establishment politics can be quite acute. The Philippines is the most obvious example of that. And the remarkable thing here is that 
much of the disenchantment has occurred not in contexts where there isn't fast economic growth. On the contrary, it's where economic growth has been at its fastest because it's been more apparent, more evident to people in some of these countries that no matter how fast the growth becomes, no matter how sustained it is over many years, some of them have felt that they've been left behind that even where they have been making progress through upward social mobility, some elements of the middle class, that the rising cost of living, the rising cost of services has meant that it's a never-ending struggle to achieve substantial material improvement. So there is a lot of disenchantment. If I can add to that, Ali um, and Gary, I think that where this ties in with my comments about ASEAN before is that ASEAN is really a project of political elites. So certainly there were these goals of economic integration and the benefits of economic cooperation, as I mentioned. But as Gary notes, the developmental state that we see in some of the key ASEAN founding states and these projects and aspirations are, are really not benefiting societies across the board. And there's been a lot of discussion in in ASEAN scholarship about the notion of um, a two-tier ASEAN, if you like, an ASEAN which is really only meaningful for a certain class, if you like. Uh, The concept of ASEAN itself is not meaningful to, it's fair to say, most people in Southeast Asian states. Certainly ASEAN is aware of this issue and around the time of the ASEAN Charter, which was adopted in 2007, the organisation sought to get away from this image of itself as an elite-centric project, but it's questionable how much success it's had in that regard. Gary, you you mentioned the Philippines, so let's go to some of these countries specifically. It's a fascinating uh, country to watch and Duterte, he still gets very high public approval ratings according to the polls, but he certainly, uh, I suppose, has his own slant on a democratic system. He does indeed. He is a populist in the classic sense that he presents himself as the authentic representative of the people. And as a populist, therefore, he doesn't see much need for these intermediary organisations that political theorists talk about. We refer to as civil society, whether they be political parties or interest groups or NGOs or trade unions. He presents himself as the person who can solve all the problems that people are mainly concerned with because he is the authentic representative of the people who've been forgotten. So we look at the context, the background to Duterte's emergence, it's not difficult to understand why this is an attractive proposition. There are so many people who felt so let down for so long by a political system that's dominated by very powerful oligarchic capitalists and and political allies of those people. And the immediate background for Duterte's rise to power was one where, in contrast with so many other regimes, there was an administration under Benigno Aquino III that was avowedly anti-corrupt. And most people would say the president himself was non-corrupt. That compared with most other regimes, there was much more seriousness taken about arresting corruption as a way of trying to alleviate poverty and so on. However, it didn't work. For all the emphasis on on improved governance and uh, combating corruption, few people could see any substantial material improvement, even though this was a period of accelerated economic growth. And so quite a few people, I think, drew the conclusion that even with the best of intent from an administration that seems to have identified the problems that we're concerned about, in real terms, they couldn't make much progress. 
the problems that people were still concerned about, the failure of the public transport system, uh, the congestion on the roads, the shortfall in infrastructure, whether it be social or physical. Uh, some people are concerned about crime levels. Some were concerned about drugs. Some people are concerned about the rising cost of living, even though they were in what seemed to be secure jobs. And that, Gary, I suppose, as you just outlined, sets it up very well for Duterte to lead with his own brand of democratic system, if you like. I mean, Avery, can you talk us through his use of language? Duterte's use of language in the Philippines since his election in 2016 is, I think, particularly interesting because what we see is a founding state of ASEAN, which um, had a democratic transition in 1986, but which in more recent times with the return to strongman rule and, and Duterte's approach to the war on drugs in particular, I think it's fair to say we can see a regression of democracy and certainly some serious concerns about human rights in the country. But Duterte engages in uh, continued references to democracy. He says, I believe in democracy and that's why I ran for president. Or when there was a threat to refer his war on drugs to the International Criminal Court, he says, well, that's fine. This is a democracy and that's what you do. Duterte is in effect trying to distinguish his idea of democracy from liberal democracy insofar as liberalism accepts the legitimacy and in fact celebrates legitimacy of political pluralism. So that unlike in an acute majoritarian system, those that don't win elections or the people that are not represented by people who prevailed in elections still have certain constitutional rights, still have certain opportunities to politically participate. What we've seen under Duterte, though, is it's a sort of winner-takes-all where he's very quickly taken charge of the appointments of the courts. He's transforming some of the key positions in the public bureaucracy and the climate, which Duterte has been very instrumental in, of intimidation uh, meted out to people who dare to question or, or criticise, has been one in which a plurality of political viewpoints and particularly critical viewpoints is not as welcome now as it was before. Indeed, it's a very intimidating atmosphere now for people and institutions such as the media. Yeah, I was just going to pick up on Gary's comments about cracking down on the media. I'm interested in the way that populist leaders are engaging with this fake news debate. So Duterte is one of several leaders, I think, who when there is criticism from the media or journalists making statements that are seen as challenging, they can dismiss those as fake news. And so this raises concerns, of course, because in a liberal democracy, we expect freedom of the press, freedom of expression, and of course, alternative outlets for debate and discourse and outlets for, for opposition perspectives as well. Gary, do you see that elsewhere in Southeast Asia? It's been rampant, actually. Cambodia, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, just a couple that have already countenanced or introduced anti-fake news legislation. And of course, in the case of Malaysia... In the last election in, in May this year, there was legislation that was hurriedly introduced, which effectively made it illegal by virtue of being deemed fake news to interrogate Prime Minister Najib's activities with regard to 1MDB. But yes, I was going to say, I mean, Malaysia is, the, is one country that stands out in the region as a result of those recent elections, power now in the hands of the opposition for the first time since the country's independence in 1957. It was quite an extraordinary development. Indeed extraordinary. Very few people predicted this, although in retrospect, we can all see 
that there were deep conflicts and there was a fair degree of political polarisation for some time. Malaysia is a really interesting example of how the conflicts that have been present, which are not altogether unique, have been dealt with in a very different way in Malaysia compared with, say, the Philippines and Singapore. In both Philippines and Singapore, there have been various institutions set up, innovative institutions, to provide avenues for new forms of political participation because political elites have been cognizant of the fact that the threat of populism in the case of the Philippines, which was a reality with Estrada taking the presidency, needed to be averted. In the case of of Singapore, uh, there have been setbacks by the PAP standards in the degree of electoral support that they desire to receive in previous years. But what they've done in both those cases, in Singapore and the Philippines, is set up new forms of consultation, new mechanisms for people to have some sort of input into public policy. There are some important differences between them, but in effect, they've pursued that line. In the case of Malaysia, they tried this back in the 1990s and early 2000s with economic consultative committees to to try and rein in the conflict that was emerging as the uneven distribution of the costs and benefits of capitalist development were having an impact. However, in Malaysia, those consultative mechanisms and innovations uh, failed pretty fundamentally because they invited people on the premise that you could have some input to public policy, you know, we really want to receive this. And what the people who participated in those focused on was the governance mechanisms in Malaysia, the absence of transparency, the presence of corruption, and in particular, they were concerned to arrest various forms of political patronage, which were inherent to the way in which capitalism and politics were organised in Malaysia. This meant that people turned their backs on those things and looked more to political parties or civil society as mediums through which to develop their political participation. Yeah, so that's a, that's a classic case then, Gary, of where putting in place these alternative forms of representation, people feel like they're having a say, even if it's a very limited say, simply was not enough in Malaysia. Wasn't enough and it backfired because the nature of the representation or the participation that was made available had such constraints on it, but you basically couldn't touch the question of uh, ethnic Malay political supremacy. And that's, you know, in one way or another, what many people wanted to contest. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Southeast Asia Politics Watchers, Professor Gary Rodan, Director of the Asia Research Centre at Murdoch University, and by Dr Avery Poole of the Melbourne School of Government. Just before we move away from Malaysia, Avery, are there any lessons from the Malaysian elections that have broader implications for the region or is Malaysia just standing out there as a one-off? I think possibly is a little early to tell, but I think we can say that uh, the situation in Malaysia certainly suggests that there are limits to the durability of authoritarian rule. And it suggests that even where situations of long-running durability and dominant party politics, it's never the case that we should say that there cannot be change. Gary, you wrote that Singapore is, quote, the prime example of how capitalist development and authoritarian rule can be viable partners. Viable for how long? Well, who can say? But the traditional argument that there's a sort of functional, positive and even necessary relationship between liberal democracy and capitalism is harder to sustain because not only has Singapore flourished economically for half a century now, China is also demonstrating something similar. 
And where there are problems of an economic nature, it's hard to isolate those down to authoritarianism per se. I mean, we have fundamental problems in our own established liberal democracies of an economic nature that possibly you could argue that things would be different if we had different sorts of democracies. But I think the really important point is that every experience of capitalist development has its own politics. And the ways in which capitalism can be organised can be many and varied. And what the Singaporeans are simply demonstrating, or the PAP is demonstrating, is that you can have rapid capitalist development without liberal democracy. The question that's being posed now is, in the absence of liberal democracy, if you have capitalist development that is unregulated and not regulated in a way that ensures a fair distribution of the benefits from capitalist development, then can authoritarian regimes survive? And which ones can? And that's the sort of challenge that the Singaporean regime faces at the moment. It also is a question of the ability to express that displeasure or that uh, feeling of being left out or that uh, sense of inequity. And that Singapore, for example, and China as well, have put in place incredibly successful systems at limiting any form of dissent. They have indeed. And one of the problems now is that, you know, the Singaporean government and the bureaucracy over which it presides is one that they present as a meritocracy, that one of the big differences they've always emphasised between them and other regimes that have often been depicted as authoritarian is that our system is a meritocratic one. It's not based on patronage, it's based on merit. And people who get to positions of power and influence and wealth have done so by merit and not being given a help upstairs. Now, whether that stands up to close scrutiny, I'll put to one side for the moment. The important point is that that system, even if you accept that that how it works, still produces inequality. And this is now becoming abundantly clear in Singapore. In fact, to the extent that meritocracy works, by definition, you must have inequality because not everybody is equally capable, even if they all started from a level playing field. And Singapore government has invested so heavily in ideological terms with the idea that it is a meritocracy and their positions of power are rationalised and justified on that basis, that it's very difficult for them to move away from it now and make concessions to the idea that people have rights and entitlements by virtue of being citizens to a fair distribution of the wealth and productivity that is generated through the economy. They're very suspicious and worried about concepts of social rights or political rights that are inherent to someone as a citizen. It's a political system that is premised on the idea that benevolent technocratic elites will do a good job for you, will look after you, and we expect, if we do that, to be rewarded at the polls. But there is a tussle going on now where, in a context of inequality and the government being reluctant to concede to concepts of entitlements to a better share of wealth by virtue of being citizens, that you know they're facing the biggest challenge yet, I think, in trying to secure the ideology that justifies such a tight elite rule. Obviously, Singapore is the, the perfect example of the sort of challenge that uh, you know an authoritarian regime faces as it develops. But it's not, I suppose, confined to Singapore. And Avery, if you look at that idea of more innovative ways of participation, of political representation without necessarily uh, what we might traditionally think of as democracy behind it, do you see it like, Gary, that this is going to be the question how long is that going to be enough? 
I think there's different ways we can think about innovation in, in participation, but this idea of participation in a digital sense and the conversation that happens through social media, through Facebook, Twitter and so forth, people in Southeast Asian countries, particularly in Indonesia, but in other countries as well, are very connected in this way. And I think that this is an area where we're seeing some really interesting academic research coming out about what this means for the way that elections are contested, but also in a less formal sense of political participation. And of course, there is regulation um, and monitoring by political elites of digital communication, but I think that can only go so far. And it must be the case that we're going to see some significant political impact in the future. Gary, do you see social media as a, a significant game changer? I see it as a double-edged sword. The technology per se is neutral. How it's used and to what effect it's put is contingent upon the social and political forces that are in control of those technologies. There are strategies, for example, in the Philippines to intimidate political opponents, to troll and generate false news, as we might call it, through social media, through various forms of digital technologies. There is a self-declared die-hard Duterte supporters group that is very well coordinated, has access to people in power, gets consultancy contracts from the government and allowances from the Presidential Operations Office as part of a political strategy to keep critics at bay. In Indonesia, we saw with the Ahok controversy where the mayor of Jakarta was hounded and criticised because of statements that he made that were considered by some Islamic groups as blasphemous, that social media there was incredibly important too in essentially mounting an anti-liberal democratic position. So I think Avery's right that this becomes really important now, but the use to which social media or a new digital and electronic media can be harnessed is highly contingent upon the particular circumstances in, in any one country. You mentioned there Indonesia, another country that's absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's been long lauded as a, a model of democratic transition, but with that rise in religious conservatism, there are questions now being asked about whether it's retreating from democracy. Gary, would you put it in that category? I would say that all regimes in the region and arguably even in the established liberal democracies have elements within them who are seeking to change the regime. Uh, what we have in any particular regime is an ascendancy of a particular ideology. So we may have clearly in Australia, our ascendant ideology is democratic, but there are non-democratic, anti-democratic elements within Australian society, including arguably some people who put themselves up for election, who if they were elected and had the option, would close down the political space for many of the people that they don't agree with. Fortunately, they are in a minority in this country. But in most regimes, there are unresolvable struggles that are continuing to take place between competing worldviews on how we ought to be organised, who should participate, how and on what. And in the case of Southeast Asia, I think Indonesia is at a point where clearly there are some elements who would like to reverse the democratic gains that have been made since the demise of the Suharto regime. The same could be said of the Philippines and was clearly evident in Thailand where you had a reversal. So these things are in play. I think that one of the reasons these countries are much more prone to change and dramatic change than the established liberal democracies is for partly the reasons that I mentioned before, that when the established liberal democracies evolved, they developed highly advanced civil society relationships, lots of collective organisations, 
they have been in retreat because the nature of globalization and the transformation of economies and the ascendance of neoliberal economic policies has made life more difficult for a lot of those organizations. You know, we are undergoing quite a lot of change. But in the Southeast Asian region, when you've got the effects of globalization arousing so much concern among so many different groups, and you don't have strong social democratic movements to try and give representation, effective representation to some of those concerns, then people can look elsewhere. And there are plenty of other organisations that have quite radical non-democratic alternatives to social democratic reform agendas. Avery? Yes, I think Indonesia is particularly interesting because for regional scholars and observers, it's been often referred to since Reformasi as the most democratic state in Southeast Asia. I think now that title probably goes to Timor-Leste. But what we now see with President Jokowi is what seems like some degree of disenchantment with democracy from a democratically elected leader. He's referred to democracy as having gone too far. And here he's particularly concerned with political freedom, quote, opening the door for extreme politics. The Vice President Yusuf Kala has made uh, similar comments about democracy as potentially opening the floodgates to extremism and even referred to Afghanistan and Syria and and other countries uh, where democracy has been, as he puts it, enforced from the outside. That's obviously a very different situation to what we saw in Indonesia in, in 1998 with the fall of the new order. But I think it is interesting in Indonesia that we see some winding back, if you like, of the freedom of association with Jokowi's regulations recently of civil society groups, which is thought to be a response to these concerns with extremism. So I think it's pretty crucial what happens in Indonesia for the regional dialogue, what happens in the ASEAN space for how we think about democracy, because democracy is destabilising often. Democratic transition can create instability. It's not necessarily a smooth process and it's not a linear process. There's often backsliding and regression. And now more and more, that's what we're seeing across the region. What about China? What role has China played in terms of the region's political systems? I mean, certainly I think it would be fair to say that they've been relatively adept at uh, exploiting weaknesses. Would it be fair to put it like that, Gary? I think the most significant thing that's happening at the moment with regard to China is that China, by virtue of being so economically advanced now and an exporter of capital and looking for new markets and looking to ensure that its own future is secured by the ways in which developments occur in Southeast Asia and beyond, is investing a lot in in aid and it's supplanting the role of Western countries in the past in taking the initiative to try and underwrite major development projects in the region. You look at it in a holistic way, there's hardly anywhere that the Chinese aren't making their loans and their aid available and they're filling a vacuum because the West has retreated in a lot of aid programs or reduced the amount of money available. And that's something that requires some sort of response. So, Avery, what what are your thoughts on on China's role? I think that the region has always been particularly concerned about the influence that not just China, but the US and back in Cold War times, the Soviet Union was playing a sort of presence in the region and that difficulty of trying to balance the interests of competing great powers. Now, of course, in recent times, the issue has focused more on China and the US as competing for influence. And China, of course, is a greater influence now that we have um, what 
Mark Beeson has referred to as a potentially a post-pivot Asia strategy from the US under Trump. I think Chinese capital is, of course, as Gary says, very important to many of the states in Southeast Asia. But the, there's always been this difficult balancing act of wanting Chinese capital and focusing on things like the ASEAN-China Free Trade Agreement and the benefits to economic cooperation with China, while also seeking to limit Chinese strategic influence. And of course, some ASEAN member states are claimants in the South China Sea disputes. So it seems to me to be just this sort of ongoing balancing act. Could I just make the point that Some of the alarm is premised on the idea that this is a threat to democracy. Well, yes, it is. Uh, But so too were the interventions of the West in supporting people like Suharto, Marcos, Lee Kuan Yew and others who very definitely, they've got a lot to answer for in terms of the shortfall in civil society and the lack of resilience in civil society today because the legacies that we talked about earlier in this discussion were largely the product of the authoritarianism that these people presided over and they were supported by Western governments. Western governments supported those regimes because there are material and commercial interests that the West had in the region and still has. So in a sense, whether it's the West or the East supporting any regime through aid programs, the really important point is not whether they're from a country that's democratic, you know, the source of the funding, but you have to drill down a bit more deeply. Clearly, if the liberal democratic governments in the West that have been supporting countries like Cambodia, for example, including with some aid for and some programs to try and assist those democratic forces to push those regimes down uh, more democratic paths, if that level of support is trumped, so to speak, by Chinese who plow in lots more money, then it takes the pressure off authoritarian governments in countries like that to be too bothered about what the West thinks about their human rights records or the way they treat opposition. So there is definitely a changing geopolitics and a prospect that Democrats within the countries of the region who are seeking to bring about more democratic reform will be abandoned. It doesn't necessarily mean that Chinese or anybody else need to actively get involved in any direct sense in the politics of those countries, but by merely being available through aid and funds to help the economic development of those countries makes them less reliant upon governments that might have ambitions to promote democratic development in the region. Professor Gary Rodan and Dr Avery Paul, thank you very much for joining us and for being so generous with your insights. Thank you very much. very welcome. Thank you. Our guests have been Professor Gary Rodan, Director of the Asia Research Centre at Murdoch University, and Dr Avery Paul of the Melbourne School of Government. Gary's latest book, which has just been released, is entitled Participation Without Democracy, Containing Conflict in Southeast Asia. It's from Cornell University Press. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on 17th of July, 20. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of ProFactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.